Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stahlsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stalsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. Good to have you. And we have, this is the first Sunday in Lent coming, coming forth. So Mardi Gras will be this week, Fat Tuesday. That's right. That's right. I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have any specific uh, Mardi Gras plans, but you know. Me neither. One, I'm sure there are. One year we cooked up a bunch of pancakes. You were living on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're going to do that this year. I don't know why. All right. Yeah. Stay. Don't, don't go. Uh, it's Methodist going wild, man. <laughs> That's Pancake right. Tuesday. <laughs> so our first text is Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11. And here we have this instruction at the end of Deuteronomy that when we come into the land, the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. When you take possession of it, that you'll take some of the first fruits of, of the fruit of the ground and which the Lord's given you and go to the place that the Lord will choose to make his name to make his name to dwell. And then, you know, you go to the priest and say, I want to declare to the Lord uh, that I've come to this land. And the priest takes your basket. And then you, it's interesting. You have this confession of faith that you respond to the priest by saying, a wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. And we cried to the Lord, and you know, the Lord takes us out of Egypt, and there's great deeds of terror and signs and wonders. And he brings us into this land, right? So it's very interesting. You have this seemingly early confession of faith. Why do you think that this is is given to us for the first Sunday in Lent? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it's paired up with G. Je- I mean, Jesus, right? And we'll see later in Luke 4, he's in the desert and he emerges victorious, you know, resisting temptations. He always quotes in Deuteronomy. And, you know, you're on this pilgrim Lent in the wilderness kind of idea. I mean, there's this... And also it's interesting because you... It's paired with Romans 10, which is also a confession text, you know, an, an early Christian confession. So here, it's interesting, this confession almost seems like that Israel's equivalent to the church's second article of the creed. Yeah. And obviously a deep connection with remembrance. So as, as I want to do, there are certain uh, Eucharistic themes that can be pulled out of, of this passage in Deuteronomy. And certainly remembrance or um, anamnesis is a crucial part of celebrating at the table. And that just seems to be the core of this passage, like bringing the first fruits and then the response, the verbal response that we give in addition to the physical response, which again is a pairing that we'll see in Romans 10, the doing and the saying. But the verbal response here in in Deuteronomy is a remembering. This is the people 
who we are and this is where we came from and this is our heritage and we give out of our generosity because we've received generously from God. Yeah, absolutely. There's this, yeah, that, that, and, and that, you know, whatever, it's interesting that whatever, you know, pagan, what other nations meant by harvest festivals, right? Celebration of the dying and rising of grain or, imbre- or impregnation of Mother Earth or just, you know, feasting while, you know, the feasting is available and good, whatever there is there. Here, it, it's whatever Israel borrows from those, it's clear that it's Israel's rejoicing in what the Lord had let them have. Right. And, and they are, and like any sort of tenant farmer, they give the first fruits, you know, they give up to the owner of the, of the land. Yeah. And the beneficiaries of these gifts are not the central religious authorities to, you know, where we would think that a tithe would go to. This is not a tithe. This is a first fruits offering and it's meant to benefit the people around them who don't have as much. So the Levites, the aliens who reside among you, and at least by my reading, Verse 11 is suggesting a communal meal that is the final celebration of this remembering and of this giving. Again, strong themes to communion, table, Eucharist. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I think I mentioned this on the podcast maybe a week or two ago, but Benedict XVI in his Jesus Jesus of Nazareth books talks about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's saying that, that oftentimes you see this pattern in Israel's life where there's some sort of feast that's generally connected to life cycles, like harvest or something, right? And then it's reinterpreted as something not just cyclical, but historical, you know, into the mighty acts of God, like we have here rehearsing God's mighty acts on Israel's behalf. And then also it has this eschatological dimension, right? Hope for a future healing and deliverance, right? And so oftentimes you can see the messianic which ultimately for Christians comes in the in the person of Christ. So there's all these. There's always. It's just like there's always a kind of. Uh, there's multiple tenses on how we're. You know, we, how we're. You know, we we've been saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. Kind of thing. And and it seems like in God's salvation economy that there's always this. There's always this anticlimax to a certain extent. Like I'm I'm looking at verse eight here from this reading. And it's talking about how God brought the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm a terrifying display of power with signs and wonders in order to do what? To bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, what could be more mundane than harvesting your crops? It's, it's just interesting that there's there, the scriptures abound with these rhythms of these great moments of God doing mir- miraculous works of mighty power, bringing the people through things that they couldn't ordinarily think or fight their way out of. And then the result is this long period of peace and just living in the land. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting too is that is that I think it says something this text says something about Israel's theology. When you start this confession of faith, it starts with Jacob because he is connected to Egypt. And so it seems like Israel could sort of rehearse its second article without even referencing Abraham or creation. That that you could that that you could get uh in Israel's faith like you could confess the Exodus without creation. But you couldn't get creation without the Exodus, right? Like, I mean, th- th- this this act of deliverance is what shapes the prologue before it, and in many ways, the hope for the future. Sure, and there are some readings by which the wandering Aramean could refer to not just Jacob but also to Abraham. It's sort of a both and kind of reading. That's a little trivia for you. Yeah, but, uh, I I didn't think about that. Okay, because we do have him, but he doesn't become multiple. He doesn't become like plentiful in Egypt. True. The way that, the way that the way that 
Jacob's seed does. But he does sojourn there, certainly. Um, but yeah, yeah, you could... Re- he does sojourn, though. C- certainly, he does sojourn. So I found this great quote from Robert Jensen on a... It's actually in Deuteronomy 5, but uh, but he kind of references it elsewhere in in, his con- one, in the Urban's commentary on the lecture, because he also does, does the reading for... Uh, he does the comment for this passage, too. But he, he says, you know, see back to my reading in Deuteronomy 5, and he says, Christian preaching from Deuteronomy should address congregations in the same way as Israel's being addressed, as God's chosen in danger of fighting God's choice. As to where the temptations to apostasy now lie, the required analogies are all too easy to draw. Indeed, at central points, monarchical Israel's temptations and those of late modern Western Christian congregations are simply the same. The chief temptations against which Deuteronomy fights are self-righteousness, fatalism before an indifferent universe, parentheses, the host of heaven, and worship of the gods of the world's endemic sexuality religion, the goddess and the Baals. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's that's good. <laughs> Leave it to Jensen to tell us the truth. Yeah, t- uh, t- uh, pro tips on Deuteronomy from Robert Jensen. <laughs> Are you still there? So on to Romans. Romans ten. Have, uh, have you ever seen? Have you ever seen uh, that one Sasha Baron Cohen character Bruno, who's like the gay German fashion? I don't think uh, so. Journalist. Uh-uh. So he he runs he he runs into this minister who is doing a kind of uh, gay conversion therapy stuff in Alabama, and the pastor says, "For instance, I was leading." The congregation last night in a Bible study right here in the book of Romans. And, and, and Bruno goes, oh, I love Romans. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was like, I, I can never think, I always think of that now whenever I read it. Oh, I love Romans. <laughs> so here we have Romans 10, 8b through 13. So don't anybody read 8a. Don't you dare. Or else, or else you'll be stoned <laughs> and you'll be thrown into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> But here this is, you know, what does it say? The word is near you, uh, that the word is near you on your lips and your heart. That is the word, you know, Paul says that we proclaim. And if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And for the one that believes with heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. And there's this great text. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. There's no distinction, Jew or Greek. Uh, the same Lord who's generous to all call him. Really, I think this is a pretty prominent passage for lots of people when they're explaining what it means to how you become a Christian. Yeah, it's a high point on the Roman road. If you need a formula for how— Roman road to salvation. Yeah, if you need a, a formula, you've got it right here, especially in verse 9. Confess with your lips, believe in your heart. Check those boxes off, you're, you got it. It's interesting, like, the way we use that verse sometimes in certain parts of American Christianity. Because this is really— Key, Robert Jewett, the one a Pauline scholar who's written a lot about honor shame stuff, and how you know it when we hear shame, we're often thinking probably a little more psychologically, not exclusively, maybe especially with social media and stuff and virtue sh- signaling shaming. But but in the ancient world, it's a totally honor shame system, and there tends to be classes of people that are just much more gravitating towards honor or that are more honored by status and or ethnic group or and there's you know groups like slaves and 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 the marginal that are that are you know the shame kind of classes here this 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 thing it's almost like i sometimes when you hear this preached it's almost in a shaming way like the shame people are you know like we're shaming the people that haven't done it or shaming people into it you know like 
it, it, we're supposed to like what Paul seems to find in this text in this honor shame kind of pretty brutal culture is this is this when 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 you when you put your faith in and cling to and you're united by the one who died shamefully but yet was raised you you will not be put to shame you know you 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 have a kind of honor that can't be taken from you uh, and it's not it's it's just an interesting like I think the way we read this when you when you when you miss the, that shame verse you know you can you could you can kind of I think really. It, it, you know, kind of lose the thrust and some of the power of, of what's in this passage. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, in verse 11. Indeed. And the construction, I mean, we these verses are so familiar, it's hard to slow down and, and see them newly. But to talk about believing in your heart, that that's bringing together categories that we don't, in, in our post-enlightenment period, don't really put together. Belief is something that happens in your head. The affections are something, according, according to our modern sensibilities, the affections are what belong in the heart. So to talk about belief in your heart, I think it's a really wonderful mix and match to show us that Paul's work, he's trafficking in completely different categories than what we are, understandably so, 2,000 years ago. But it also, I think it helps us trouble the idea of what it means to believe. And and when when these verses are often used in a check checkbox kind of way, like, you know, get this done, sign this off, and, and, and make sure, you know, um, make sure you're saved— Belief is usually just relegated to some kind of mental assent, and really, it's it's so much more. It does engage the heart. Paul, I'm sure, is talking about something that's that's much more fully orbed in what it means to be a human. That with your lips, and with your hands, and with with all that you think and and feel, Jesus needs to be Lord of that. I I I think it's nothing short of that kind of claim. Yeah, and I think you know it's interesting. Salvation, right, is is never private, but it always has to be personal. And here you have, you know, N.T. Wright even says in his commentary, I think in the New Interpreter's Bible, that it almost seems like the confession with your lips might re- might refer to baptismally, like you know, you confess the faith and are baptized kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that, so here you have the personal and the public coming together, right? There's this there's this act that's external. And confessional, but yeah, then there's the interior and and, and the will and the heart and the emotion. So yeah, it's a beautiful kind of comprehensive picture of of when you know the lips, the head, the heart come together. That it, it has the shame lifting capacity, right? The shame uh, that, that that it brings you, but it brings you a different kind of honor than the kind of honor in a shame honor culture, like you know the Mediterranean, the ancient Mediterranean, and not unlike a landowner who brings the first fruits of his crops and lays them out before all the people. Who live in his neighborhood, the the aliens, the the um, the Levites, and says, "Let's have a feast together." Uh, it's it's personal, but not private. That kind of public act. go on to the gospel reading Luke 4 verses 1 through 13 a very uh, very lentish very appropriate lent journey kind of passage where Jesus is driven after his baptism he's he full of the spirit he's he's led into the into the wilderness where he is in the spirit and is tempted by the devil for 40 days which means he's not alone right he's not separated from god at all in in these moments Right. Yeah. Full of the spirit. And then there's the famous kind of three temptations where he's at, asked to th- uh, 
you know, turn stones into bread and throw himself off the temple. And if he'll just bow the knee to the devil, he'll give him control of all the kingdoms. And Jesus refutes all of these with Deuteronomy. So it's very interesting mm-hmm. because in the place where the first generation, I mean, Deuteronomy, which you read from, imagines Moses preaching a sermon to the first generation and going to the land. But elsewhere, we, we're told that the first generation never makes it into the land, right? Like, And that, that, that basically the first generation in the wilderness, it, Jesus lives a, a, a second story. I mean, it's like, it's like he, he perseveres in the wilderness where Israel faltered. And, just like, and, it, and he says no in the desert to everything Adam and Eve said yes to in the garden. Nice, yeah. So he's kind of new Adam, new Israel here. Yep. And, and none, of the things, none of the things he says no to are bad in themselves, are they? No, yeah. I mean, think, of, for instance, about the first temptation, the um, turning stones to bread. I mean, imagine how much good that could do, right? How many hungry people could be fed if he would just unleash that kind of power? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Henri Nouwen has a little book, In the Name of Jesus, and, and the subtitle is Reflections on Christian Leadership. And he sees the, the three temptations this way. He sees the first one, the stones to bread, is the temptation to be relevant. Mm. And the second one, throw yourself off the temple, he sees as the temptation to be spectacular. And the third he sees as, as the temptation to be powerful. And, uh, and then he kind of looks at the, 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 these things are like the chapters are from relevance to prayer, from popularity to ministry, and from leading to being led. Uh, and how, like, basically what, what, what Jesus is saying no to is what uh, we're all tempted to say yes to, right? These, these, these things. And you're right, like, how often uh, are, you know, the, what is, was the saying that the, hell, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Yeah. That, you know, very, very, very often, uh, you know, these things, uh, you know, being, doing something that attracts the crowd or being something relevant or there's a lot of good things one can do with worldly power. Uh, but you know, the, the, this, but Jesus sees that these are all traps, uh, and, and then emerges from the wilderness, not consumed. I'm just struck as you say that to think about how much church leadership literature traffics in those very things. Probably what now was confronting, I would imagine. The temptations to be relevant. Yeah, it seems like these could be these things. You, these could be a seminar: how to be relevant, oh, <laughs> spectacular, and powerful. Power, and we we just change powerful to to be to say strong leadership skills. And and you know we've got shelves full of books of Christian literature written to pastors and church leaders about how to be these very things, how to put on a good show. Absolutely. So the preacher needs to preach to him or herself this week, I believe. Absolutely. And, you know, I think of that saying by about Eugene Peterson, like especially at Lent, where he says Christian discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on our own. So I think Lent of all times is 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 the time is where we almost focus so much on our own acts of righteousness, right? I, there's this great quote that Bonhoeffer has in Life Together. He says the Christian is the man who no longer seeks his salvation, his deliverance, his justification in himself, but in Jesus Christ alone. He knows that God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him guilty, even when he does not feel his guilt. And God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him not guilty and righteous, even when he does not feel righteous at all. The Christian no longer lives of himself by his own claims and his own justification, but by God's claims and God's justification. He lives wholly by God's word pronounced upon him. And you see that in Jesus, right? The one living by word and spirit. And I think the, the temptation is to say like, all right, Lent is imitation of Jesus time when, when really it's participation, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't, we're not redeemed by imitation of Christ, 
but by participation in Christ and, and, and what he does for us, right? And that's where all imitation flows from that. It's way too easy to turn the application of this sermon is to just encourage people or berate them to not give in to temptation. When, when the whole point is you and I can't not give in to temptation. Jesus had to do this for us. That, right, that's the, right. This and is a demonstration of... And, and just as he lives by, you know, man, he says man doesn't live, live by bread alone, by every word of God. He is the very word of God. Right. Yeah, great text. I mean, I think a great text to sort of meditate on uh, the, the, the pro-nobus, like what, it, what, uh, what, you know, Martin Luther calls, you know, the great for us. Yeah. Like Jesus does this for us. So Scott, what's to say that we should give up for Lent? Bread? That's a good, what's that? Yeah, yeah carbs. Give up carbs. Keto, keto, go keto. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I'll be doing that. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's a great, uh, you know, I mean, it is, I mean, it's a great time to talk about, you know, it's very interesting that J. Gresham Machen at the end of his life, you know, the early 20th century Presbyterian kind of controversialist, it's like sick, and I think on his deathbed, and, and sent this telegram, I think to John Murray or somewhere, or was it Van, so it was another Presbyterian churchman, and it just said, active obedience of Christ, couldn't get through life without it. And this idea that he just is just like, die for us but lives for us mm-hmm. he lived and lives for us and so that this is you know this it's just like you can't you can't like here the devil goes away for an op- until an opportune time like you can't read the cross outside of the life and story of jesus and you can't read the life and story of jesus outside of the cross of christ like they're you have to let them interpret one another yeah that's right well blessings in your preaching this uh sunday glenn and and, and to all of our our listeners you too scott thank you so much my friend Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.blogspot.com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well. 